Okay, let's uh, recap what we've uh, been talking about this morning and then plunge further into um, 20th century American liberalism. Um, we see Wilson takes a, a fundamentally different point of view on um, human rights and on constitutions than the, founder, the founding generation uh, did. He takes as his uh, touchstone evolution. Uh, that is the Darwinian discovery that nature is not something fixed with fixed essences that one can know and count on, but that nature is in flux. Uh, nature is in constant change, adaptation, and betterment of itself. And therefore, politics must follow nature's uh, laws or nature's lead, which means that instead of looking to a, a, a static idea of human nature, one must have a progressive idea of human nature. Um, what were thought to be human rights in the 18th century were adequate formulations for the 18th century, but they're not adequate for the 20th century because we have grown in self-consciousness, in moral sensitivity uh, over that period. If our rights are in fact progressing, then so must our constitutional forms. You could, you could sum it up, I think, in this way. Um, the old understanding was a, a fixed human nature, uh, fixed human rights, and therefore, more or less, a fixed constitution, one that would be as permanent as possible and as difficult to change as possible because its business was always going to be the same, protecting your life, liberty, and property against government's own depredations and against your fellow human beings who might try to kill you, imprison you, or make you a slave, uh, or steal your property. Those were the essential functions of government. But if, in fact, um, our nature is uh, changing, evolving, improving, uh, if our social conditions are changing and we have these new kinds of challenges that industrialization and immigration and all the other social problems of the late 19th century had brought about, then we need a constitution that is not as inflexible or as fixed as possible, but one that is as flexible, as open to change, as adaptable as possible. And so one needs to secure one's changing rights, one needs a changing constitution. Essentially, yes, Matt. Right. No. Well, Wilson, like many other well-meaning um, uh, progressive characters, thought that. Uh, segregation was probably a progressive institution. Um, that is, that segregation was better for whites and for blacks, uh, it would allow both races to continue to develop at their own pace, <clears throat> and would, uh, and the fact that the political effect of segregation was to give effective control of the government to whites was, from his point of view, very defensible because whites were the more advanced race. 
they were more capable of self-government, uh, and indeed they were so capable of self-government that they were, they were able to govern others, like blacks, better than they could govern themselves. I mean, that's, to put it in blunt terms, that's, I think, how he thought about it. Did he say well, he d uh, yes, I mean, not, well, not quite explicitly, but you could stitch together statements that would come pretty close to that, I think. Um, in, in, in this, and it's, it's very useful to bring this up because you see, I mean, I, what I'm trying to give is sort of Wilson's own understanding of himself so that we can criticize it once we've understood it himself as he, under, as he, as he understand him as he understood himself. Um, and all the talk about uh, evolving rights and more rights and so forth sounds great, but when you abandon natural rights, when you abandon the notion that there is a fixed human nature and that blacks participate in it just as much as whites do, there are some tremendous costs of this new evolutionary approach that we have to confront as well. I mean, it may offer some important benefits, but it also comes with some moral problems and, and some deep moral um, costs that we need to factor in as well. Yes, ma'am. If Wilson was an advocate of progressive change in government and mm -hmm. one who thought that our rights were evolving, yes. why did he work so assiduously to deny the vote to women? Um, well, I think that he was, I mean, Wilson is a, <clears throat> Wilson is a conservative progressive. Um, by which I mean, I mean, if you think about, <laughs> if you think about this in terms of the 1912 election, though, just, I mean, let's put ourselves in, the, in, uh, in 1912 for a moment. How would you align the candidates? Well, uh, William Howard Taft is clearly, uh, you know, the most traditional conservative kind of candidate, although he, would, he himself utterly hated, detested, and rejected the label conservative. Um, in the middle, you would put Wilson. And to, and to Wilson's left is Teddy Roosevelt in the 1912 campaign. Because Roosevelt is pushing all the things that... Um, Wilson was unsure of and uncertain about, like uh, initiative, referendum, and recall. Of course, only at the state level. He's not talking about it at the national level. Um, but from Wilson wanted to be in the middle. I mean, that's, that's where he thought, I mean, the Republicans were destroying themselves. They were self-destructing. His only hope was to pass between these two powerful self-destructive uh, forces because, you know, Democrats didn't win it, uh, the presidency. You know, from the Civil War until the New Deal, I mean, the only two Democratic presidents are Grover Cleveland, who came in, sort of sneaked in once, and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, was voted out after his first term and came back later on, the only president to serve two unconnected uh, terms, and Woodrow Wilson. And in both cases, there was a kind of an electoral breakdown or accident that helped them into office, because at the national level, the country in, in the post-Civil War era is solidly, is pretty solidly Republican. Uh, if, in other words, if Teddy Roosevelt had not challenged uh, William Howard Taft, probably Wilson would, could not have won the election of 1912. But 
in, in running <clears throat> in this three-man race, he wanted to position himself as a clear progressive, but not as loony as TR, uh, who's really out there pushing things. And on women's suffrage, I think he, uh, you know, this business about the patriarchal family penetrates very deeply into Wilson's uh, understanding. For him, the patriarchal family was, the key, was a key institution in the progress of, of humanity and the progress of its more advanced races in particular. Uh, and so uh, women's suffrage, I mean, I, wouldn't want to, I don't want to put these words into his mouth because I'm, I'm now speaking sort of broadly. But I think that uh, it's, it's not unreasonable to think that this notion about the, uh, about the historically important role of the patriarchal family had something to do with his caution on the question of women's suffrage. Yeah. Yes, sir. No. Yes, there, uh, there are real civil... I mean, as you know, in, in World War I, there were real civil liberties uh, problems on the home front. And they're connected in part to his notion that um, the forms of the Constitution are, are not that important and, in fact, are mostly obstacles to uh, progress. And so, uh, you know, his view is... He's, he's famous for saying... This is actually a quote he lifted from um, um, Walter Badgett that it's not remarkable that the American people could run the Constitution that the founders gave them in 1788, um, or that they approved in 1788, because the American people could run any Constitution. <laughs> Meaning that the genius of self-government is in the race. It's in their heritage. It's in their acquired characteristics over, uh, over time. Um, and the niceties of the Constitution are not that important. They're secondary. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a position that is fundamentally um, friendlier to something like the British Constitution and, it, and that model than it is to the American Constitution. It's really a sort of almost an unwritten Constitution argument. Um, and so I think one could also fairly say about his policies in World War I uh, that, yeah, I mean, if you... Um, if you have to uh, evade the First Amendment maybe a little bit or even violate it a little bit in order to ensure that the more progressive side wins the war, uh, it's no problem because the people will snap back. They're, you know, they're not going to give up their liberties permanently. You can, you can be assured of that because it's not the kind of people they are. 
And the First Amendment doesn't make them that kind of people. The First Amendment is just an expression of something more fundamental. And so you, you know, crossing the line a little bit on the law is in that way not so grievous an act because you have their habit to rely on, which will come back to them. Um, and, but obviously that's another, that's another serious problem in departing from the formalism of the founding generation, its constitutionalism, one might say, uh, and its concern that uh, government power is always a potential um, a, a tyrant over people. For Wilson, I mean, one of the, I mean, I think American liberals don't quite recognize this, perhaps, but from Wilson's point of view, and as we're going to see in FDR, the reason that big government becomes, um, to use the capital B and G, big government becomes possible is that we really don't have to worry about tyranny anymore. We're not, we've got that out of our system. The American people are not going to use the power of government to tyrannize over themselves. And thus you can safely accumulate power at the center because you know that that power is not going to be used against the people since it's the people who are giving that power to the government. Now that's the kind of confidence that the, the founders never had and would never have regarded as safe. Yeah. Yes, ma'am, over here. Well, uh, I think Wilson might very well be concerned about that, but uh, he is, after all, a, a progressive. And if, I mean, the idea was not that there would be a, um, or would not necessarily be a permanent difference among the races, but that there is a present difference among the races. Uh, all races should be advancing. And in, in the end, perhaps, the farther you go, the closer they should become, other things being equal. It's for their own good. <laughs> Can I put it more directly than that? No, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Of this, you 
yes, yeah, he would be concerned that with an influx of southern and eastern Europeans mm -hmm. who are uh, uh, Slavic, not Aryan, uh, you have some major um, potential problems. Um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is more front and center on the question of Americanization. He makes this in his own presidency. He makes, and afterwards, Teddy Roosevelt makes Americanization of, of immigrants um, a big, th a big theme. But I think you could you could say that both T.R. and Woodrow Wilson uh, were particularly concerned about the problem of immigration because of who was immigrating. Uh, if there had been large numbers of people from Scotland. Ireland and England immigrating, that would be one thing. <clears throat> if you had, uh, if as you actually had, however, large numbers of people from places that were not, um, that had no tradition of self-government and were of a, of a race that had no tradition of self-government, then yeah, you have more of a problem. It's a more, you have to sort of formulate some way to actually Americanize them. Uh, because um, they simply don't have the built-in advantages that Irish or, of course, Irish have their own problems, but, I mean, uh, Scottish and uh, Eng English uh, immigrants would have. I mean, Woodrow Wilson, I mean, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, opposes, for example, St. Patrick's Day as a holiday on the grounds that it encourages fragmentation and, it, uh, and that, you know, the Irish... They should practice their bad habits uh, on their own. We don't all have to celebrate them. Uh, yeah. Would you say that Teddy would... Now, let us say that it's not complete. At that point of view, although it has, a, it has a definite racial component to it, it's not completely unreasonable. I mean, T Thomas Jefferson was worried about the same kind of thing. Uh, and it wasn't racial with him. He was worried about, you know... Um, uh, Europeans coming over from despotic governments uh, who had no idea of self-government. And, you know, that, that could be a problem. Uh, in the 20th century, it may, you know, it turns out with experience that it may, um, um, that, that there's something to be said on the other side of the arguments. Some of the, the you might say, the, the best and most easily um, assimilated American immigrants have been precisely those fleeing tyranny you know, who have come, come across and become, because of their hatred of tyranny, have become, you know, very prominent and, and vocal uh, American citizens. So, uh, but the argument in its own terms is not completely crazy, that if, if, if people are coming from a country that has no history of, of elections uh, for office and, you know, free press and the whole nine yards, then, yeah, okay, it, you have to, they have to be, brought up to speed on democracy in a way that others would not have to be. Yes? Um, can you speak a little bit more to, to Wilson's understanding of corporations <coughs> and economic realities of this developing big business in, the, in this time period? Um, Let's, this question is on Wilson on corporations. Let me get to that okay. because I want to cover some of these readings uh, with you. So we can turn to FDR at the end and, and sort of pull some of these strings uh, together. Uh, but I'm going, to come, I'm going to come up to that question. All right. Given evo evolutionism as the, as the context, really, of Wilson's 
thinking. What does he actually prescribe for American government? He says, we, we basically, we need a 20th century constitution to solve 20th century social problems. But unfortunately, we're stuck with an 18th century document. So what we have to do, since it's too difficult to change that document, literally, you know, uh, legally through the amendment process, what we've got to do is come at it, interpret it in a very different spirit. We have to have a 20th century spirit to, as it were, pour 20th century wine into this 18th century bottle. Yeah. Now, that means that instead of fixating on checks and balances and keeping every unit of government in, in its own little orbit, we've got to think organically. We've got to think biologically. We've got to think not of opposing the branches of government to each other, but uh, of how to foster their cooperation across department lines. Um, he refers to them almost always as the organs of government. And he's thinking biologically, that is, that you, you know, your kidney and your heart are not, to, are not supposed to be checking each other. They're supposed to be cooperating to keep the body as a whole healthy and alive. This is what the executive and the judicial branch, and especially the executive and the legislative branch, should be doing. So to bring them into closer cooperation, he prescribes this, uh, he prescribes what he calls leadership and what I want to now talk about a little bit. Um, leadership is, um, he discusses in a very important uh, essay of his called Leaders of Men, which you've been given um, to read. Uh, let's start by dipping into that at a couple of places. Um, for example, page 214. This is in the Pistrito volume. Now, as I say, leadership used to have a very negative context, or, or connotation, excuse me. And here he gives you, early in this essay, a kind of passing reminder of why it has such a negative connotation. Middle of the page on 214. Wilson writes, The competent leader of men cares little for the interior niceties of other people's character. He cares much everything for the external uses to which they may be put. His will seeks the lines of least resistance, but the whole question with him uh, is a question as to the application of force. There are men to be moved. How shall he move them? He supplies the power. Others supply only the materials upon which that power operates. The power will fail if it be misapplied, it will be misapplied if it be not suitable, both in its character and its method, to the nature of the materials upon which it is spent. But that nature is, after all, only its means. It is the power which dictates, dominates. The materials yield. Men are as clay in the hands of the consummate leader. All right. That doesn't sound very democratic does it? Very Republican, uh, with a small r. And that is a reminder of the danger in the concept of leadership. Now, it happens that at the beginning of the 20th century, Woodrow Wilson is not the only person who is developing a theory of leadership. Um, if you look to Europe in the same year, roughly in the same years, you see two other famous theories of leadership being advanced. One advanced by Lenin, 
the so-called vanguard theory. Um, you know, the problem that Lenin faced uh, in bringing about a communist revolution was uh, the workers, unfortunately, did not have revolutionary consciousness. That is, the, the workers were sunk in what Lenin called trade union consciousness. That is, they wanted you know, better working conditions, better wages, longer vacations, things like that, not revolution. And so to make a workers' revolution, you couldn't depend on those slobs, the workers. You had to depend upon the central committee of the Communist Party, a bunch of intellectuals and political uh, leaders, to jumpstart the revolution, to lead the working class into a revolution that it would not get into on its own. Now, why did the, this bunch of intellectuals in the Central Committee have the right to do this? Because they had a vision of the communist future that was denied to the working stiffs themselves. And they didn't need an election, therefore, because how, why would you have those who are ignorant elect those who are wise? That doesn't make sense. Instead, you have to trust the wise to lead the ignorant into the promised land of the future. All right, that's, the, that's the Leninist theory. The other theory of leadership which emerges very powerfully in the beginning of the 20th century, of course, is the fascist theory, which Mussolini and, above all, Hitler um, uh, develop, which holds that um, in the sort of the charisma of the leader, not, not, in the, uh, um, not in the central committee of the party, but the party, the nation is the party and the party is the leader. And it's, you know, it's, it's more than a strange coincidence that Mussolini wants his title to be Il Duce, the leader. And Hitler wants his title to be Der Führer, the leader. They, want to, they don't want to be president, they don't want to be prime minister, they don't want to be um, king or monarch. They want to be leader, leader of their party, and the party, the leader of the country. And for them, leadership, again, doesn't depend upon elections. Uh, it depends upon a kind of um, racial um, consciousness and um, sort of the power, the charismatic power of an individual to, to become the center of attention of the party and of the nation as a whole and to, and to concenter in himself the national consciousness. Now, as opposed to these two very undemocratic theories of leadership, we are very lucky that Woodrow Wilson's theory of leadership is, uh, is extremely democratic in its own way. Um, it's certainly not the same as the democracy of, of Abraham Lincoln or of the, the democracy of the founders who were very suspicious of this kind of appeal to the, pu to, to the public and an attempt to lead the public somewhere. But nonetheless, as compared to its 20th century competitors, uh, it doesn't look so bad. Now, what is it that keeps Wilsonian leadership more democratic than these other European forms um, of leadership? Here, let's look at page 221.
last paragraph on the page. He's describing the um, qualities of the leader. And he says, um, uh, let us fairly distinguish the peculiar and delicate duties of the popular leader from the not very peculiar or delicate crimes of the demagogue. Here he's, he's, going, he's now saying leaders are not demagogues. We're going to make a distinction. Leadership for the statesman is interpretation. He must read the common thought. He must test and calculate very circumspectly the preparation of the nation for the next move in the progress of politics. If he fairly hits the popular thought, when we have missed it, are we to say that he is a demagogue? No. The nice point is to distinguish the firm and progressive popular thought from the momentary and whimsical popular mood, the transitory or mistaken popular passion. Okay, what is, what is he pointing to then? What makes a leader a leader from Wilson's point of view, is what he calls uh, the ability to interpret the common thought. That is, not to get way out ahead of it, like the vanguard leadership of um, Lenin, not to um, sort of arrogantly assume that his thoughts are more, are the popular thought, the way, say, the fascist leader would do, but to listen carefully and circumspectly to what the public actually wants, to consult it. Uh, as he says in this essay, the, the, the ear of the leader must ring with the voices of the people. That is to say, his leader is supposed to listen to the people and to be only slightly in front of them so that he's not imposing a vision on them, but he is, as it were, gathering from them a vision which they are in possession of but are unconscious of. They don't see it yet. And what he must do is help them to see it. Now, what is this vision? What, is, what, what are we talking about? <laughs> what is this a vision of? It's a vision of the future. That's why, again, progress and history are still fundamental to Wilson's uh, political thought, political theory. The leader, leadership means leading us into the future. That means you have to know something about the future. You must be able to sort of see what's ahead of you. Not far ahead of you, but the next step in the progress of politics. The leader is therefore the person who has, as it were, slightly more sensitive antenna than the ordinary person. He picks up you know, the, the dim um, radio broadcast first. He picks up the waves from the future first before ordinary people do. Eventually, they will hear the same thing he does. But his job is to imaginatively recreate for them the sound or the vision that they can't quite perceive yet. Yeah? Isn't that terribly arrogant to think that you Well, do, 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 you want to be, do you want to have a leader or not? I mean, one of the basic problems with the, any notion of any theory of leadership like this in American politics is it makes a 
inevitable distinction between leaders and followers. Yeah? If you're going to have leaders, that means you want to have followers. Yeah, only, you know, it, you can't have one without the other. Now, that's why, one of the reasons why, from the point of view of the, of the founders and Lincoln, a theory of leadership is a suspicious thing. Because republicanism is based upon equality. All citizens stand under the eyes of the law um, as equals. All human beings under the eyes of nature are equals. Um, you may have elected officials whose jobs provide them with the platform to be statesmen, like the presidency or, in their own way, the Supreme Court justices or whatnot. But you're not talking about um, leading the people somewhere that they don't, they're not sure they want to go. You're talking about representing the people. Representation and leadership are not opposites, but they, are, they point in different directions, different understandings of democratic politics. Are your leaders there to represent you better than you could uh, and to govern you better than you could if, you know, in a mass meeting of 300 million people? Or are they there to lead you to a, a better and different future that you don't quite understand? Now, um, of course, in America, we like, everyone wants to be a leader. And you know, only in America could you have everyone being a leader and nobody being a follower. <laughs> but that doesn't really, I mean, that's not the truth. I mean, the truth is, if you're, if you're seeking a, a leader, you're, in effect, admitting that you're a follower. And that has certain uh, unsavory implications. Yes, okay, sorry, questions back here in the back row. Yes. And that the brain operates, will influence, I should say, or run, help run other parts of, of the body. So I don't, I don't look at them as organs operating together. I look at it as Wilson is, says the presidency should be the brain helping to run other parts of the body, leading other parts of the body. Yes, but cooperation means cooperation under leadership for Wilson. And the president is to be the leader who induces his party and thus the Congress to cooperate with him in helping to advance the nation, you know, in the next step in its march into the future. That's, I think you're, you're exactly right, but he sees all that as, as uh, fitting together. Well, yes. Oh, sorry. Well, it doesn't mean that the organs are all equal in dignity. Um, I mean, you know, but they're all indispensable to the body's health. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, in a way, of course, this is, well, medieval. <laughs> um, but I don't want to go there yet. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, I see this uh, as, as, as the government, again, in evolution, it's, it's evolved. 
evolving. Right. It's, it's moving to a higher point. Um, he sees himself as, as, as the person that is putting together a, a central focus for a government, for a people, um, leading through this whole thing. That, that, it's, that's just the way I, I view, I've right. always viewed uh, this for quite some time. Right, no. And so it, let's look now at page 223, um, top of the page. Wilson has explained uh, in the preceding paragraphs that normally a leader is a sort of expert in compromise because um, leadership means bringing society along. Society is an organism, which means that the greater, you have to always bring along the greater part of the organism, the majority, with you if you're to be a successful leader. And that means basically, uh, or mostly, sort of baby steps in politics. Gradual ad uh, adaptation, emphasis on gradual, to new circumstances. But he says, every now and then, leadership wears a different um, mask. Instead of gradual compromise uh, as a way to progress, a leader must stand for a cause. He must take what appears to be an unpopular stand and you know, battle to bring the majority over to something which they are reluctant to um, embrace. And here's how he explains that, top of 223. That general sense of the community may wait to be aroused and the statesman must arouse it, may be inchoate and vague and the statesman must formulate and make it explicit. But he cannot and should not do more. The forces of the public thought may be blind. He must lend them sight. They may blunder, he must set them right. He can do something to create such forces of opinion, but it is a creation of forms, not of substance, and without such forces at his back, he can do nothing um, effective. So that means that even when a president seems to take um, an unpopular stand, he can't really convince people he has to, if he succeeds, it's because the people is sort of ready for this position, but they didn't quite realize it. So the public is, in, is an unconscious um, organism, and the leader gives a certain consciousness, as you were saying about the brain, the leader gives a certain consciousness to this unconscious organism. He allows it to see. So the, the organism as a whole is blind, but he provides sight or vision to it. Now, this is where another one of these words that now is very uh, prominent in our political vocabulary begins to enter into uh, politics. For the leader to be a leader, he must have vision in two senses of the term. He's got to have a vision of the future. He's got to be able to see around the bend of the river and know, sort of know what's coming. And he's got to be able to turn from that vision to the people and make them see it, make them believe in it, give them the power of seeing it. So the vision itself and then making them, giving them vision, the vision to see the vision that he is seeing. All right, now also, that's why Wilson is talking about. Now, this is, where have we heard about this before? Uh, where do ideas, where would we find ideas similar to this uh, before?
Wilson lived in a time after Lincoln. You know, I, I'm sure that all the presidents were affected by him of that, you know, Civil War generation, that somehow his presidency was an example of well, there is, I mean, Lincoln is often called uh, a sort of uh, figure like, uh, like an Old Testament prophet. Um, and so he, uh, Wilson's theory of vision and prophecy have something in common. But I think there's a big difference between Wilson and um, Lincoln in that for moral guidance, Lincoln looks backwards. He looks to the Declaration of Independence to 1776 he argues we understood those concepts better back then than we do today. So rather than the present being better than the past and the future better than the present, we are, the present has forgotten important things that the past once knew and knew better than we do now. And unless we change that, the future will be even more ignorant of them than we are because slavery will spread and the gospel of slavery will spread with it. Now, um, Wilson shuns all such attempts to sort of look back for moral guidance in favor of looking forward. A vision of the future is what you're looking for, not, you know, moral truths from the past. But the, I, I would say the, the place where you've heard this kind of um, analysis before would be the Old Testament. There is a kind of prophetic function that a leader um, discharges, which Wilson is very interested in. But the difference is in the Old Testament, you know, God uses a prophet to send a, a vision to his people. And usually, you know, the vision is not good news. <laughs> usually God is displeased with what his people are doing and he lets them know it by sending them a prophet to wake them up and warn them of what's going to happen unless they come back to the true way, unless they return to the law and stop breaking it. In that sense, Lincoln is a kind of... Uh, modern version of an Old Testament prophet. That is, he says, here is our law, the Declaration of Independence. We are living uh, in sin. We have broken this law. We have sinned a great sin um, in the institution of slavery and especially in the, in the moral acceptance of slavery. And now uh, I am here to call you back to the law. But the law, the truth, is something uh, both in the past and transhistorical. I mean, all men are created equal is, as, as Lincoln says, uh, an abstract truth applicable to all men at all times. Wilson's prophecy is not sent from, from God or from you know, nature in the Declaration of Independence in the past, but comes from history in the future. Instead of sort of God to the prophet to the people, it's history or the future to the leader to the people. It's, and it's not a, a sort of vertical truth coming down from above us. It's a horizontal truth coming from in front of us. Where we're going to be, where social evolution is going to take us in a few years, the job of the leader is to call that vision to our mind. Let us sort of have a prefiguration of what the future holds for us. Now, you, you might rightly ask, this, this sounds a little crazy. Um, and indeed, uh, you know, it, 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 maybe it is a little crazy because I mean, previously the people who have, what kind of people have visions? <clears throat> I mean, either people have visions who are like, you know, prophets divinely chosen uh, by the Lord 
or you know drunks have visions they see <laughs> pink elephants you know if you if you fall down the steps and hit your head you see stars you know you have visions of things but you wouldn't put a lot of faith in these kinds of visions you know you wouldn't uh, follow someone who has a vision so the key component in making vision of this sort respectable and even routine in politics is the progressive assumption that the future is going to be better than the present and we can sort of see that coming see it well enough that a leader can turn to us and give us some idea of it question sorry um, to me it seems like this is kind of what Publius is doing right like that the uh, articles of confederation are going to uh, result in fragmentation of America and that uh, there's, a, there's this need for a new arrangement and that they and it seems like the Federalist Papers themselves are trying to sell the new constitution to the uh, citizens of the state yep. of New York. Yes, but uh, but the emphasis there is more is not that that's inevitable, um, but that it's a choice. If we don't choose the constitution, then the union is going to go to hell. Uh, if we do choose the constitution, it doesn't mean everything's going to be hunky dory. It just means we have a chance to hold the union together and maybe to make, uh, you know, to protect liberty and have a respectable Republican government. That's what I would say would be the, the distinction between the, between the two. So how does he come to terms with leaders that profess to see a vision of the future that is good for their people, yet are bad? I mean, like, I mean, Hitler hasn't come yet really big when he's there, right, but, right. but there are some. In the world, I mean, how does he kind of come to terms with that? Um, uh, that's my, I want the last quotation I want to look at is about this uh, problem, which is a huge problem for him. Yes, sir. This is his core philosophy, and ultimately we should see it as President of the United States. Is that true? Yes, we I think so. We should see it played out. Well, reaching into the future, if he does believe that, is that the struggle with the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations? Oh, of course, yeah. The, the Treaty of Versailles is a classic example of... Of, of something that the future holds in readiness um, and which is the job of the leader to sort of bring his people along to it. Um, but he fails. Uh, and this, this is a part of the problem of what happens if, you, you know, can the future be defeated? Um, can betterment be stopped or reversed? Yeah, and that's, that's what I want to finish this discussion on. But... Uh, sorry. Who failed the leader? Uh, well, this is part of the question, yeah. Was history inevitable after all? Or was this a personal failing of the leader? And if so, how could history make a mistake if it's somehow inevitable? I mean, these are the conundrums that you, uh, you have to face. Yes, ma'am. Is this what Wilson was doing then, looking ahead and the like when he said we must enter World War I to make the world safe for democracy? Yeah, I mean, I, for Wilson, the next step in the evolution of government is, as it were, um, at the international level. Um, there's still reform to be done at the national level, but there's also going to be now a federation of republican nations uh, or free nations that will defend the peace of the world against future aggression. And that is, yeah, that's the next step in the evolution of the organism of government, or the state, as he would say. 
Now, I, I just want to say that this, this notion of the visionary uh, is actually not so foreign to us because as uh, Bill Sapphire, the former White House speechwriter, pointed out many years ago, there's now a section in almost every um, presidential um, acceptance speech and sometimes campaign speeches in, in, which directly reflects this visionary notion of leadership. And that's the section that Sapphire calls the IC section. And the IC section goes something like this. I see in America in which every um, person who wants a job will have a job. I see in America in which no child will be without health insurance. Um, I see in America in which the scourge of drug abuse will be ended. George H.W. Bush actually said that last thing. Um, the guy who had the famous vision problem. He had, a, he had the vision thing, he said. He got, he got everything about politics except the vision thing, <laughs> which was, as it turns out, a big thing not to get. Um, yeah. uh, particularly in contemporary, particularly when you're running against Bill Clinton, who has, you know, who has vision in spades. Uh, now, um, so this notion, what are, what are these sections telling us? They're, they're foreseeing a future. They're prophesying a future. I see an America in which, um, you know, uh, uh, no child will be without health care. Um, it's, 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 it's not an argument why we should have national health insurance. It's a vision. I mean, it's I see it. It's coming. Let me help you get there. That's, that's the appeal the essence of the visionary appeal. Now, the, the danger of the visionary appeal, of course, is that it is, how do you disprove a vision? <laughs> I mean, how, you know, I, see, I see in America, you know, in which, uh, you know, uh, uh, poverty has been completely overcome. You do? <laughs> I, mean, uh, I don't. Um, uh, uh, which no child has left. Yeah, I see in America. Yeah, I see in America in which no child's behind is left unpaddled, uh, or you know, I, I, it's it's a different it's a different vision, but it's uh, you know it's my vision and I, I kind of like it. So, uh, no, yeah, you see, I mean, how do you have a conf a conflict of visions? How do you resolve a conflict of visions? It's almost, it's impossible to resolve until you actually get there. If you're making predictions about the future, only the future can confirm or deny them. And so there's a certain tendency when you follow arguments like this for claims to sort of spiral out of control. You know, I, I see a future <laughs> in which uh, this dr drug abuse has been reduced. Uh, oh no, I see a future in which drug abuse has ended. You know, and, Promises, over-promising, becomes a kind of uh, temptation, a real temptation in this sort of politics. If you look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates, they're much more, I mean, one of the things that I think strikes you if you read a lot of the Lincoln-Douglas debates is um, there's, there's almost none of this sort of visionary appeal. There's a lot more argument. There's dispute about what the fifth, about uh, the morality of slavery. There's dispute about the legality of slavery in the territories. 
There's dispute about whether it's advantageous or not advantageous to allow slavery to spread. Um, they're rich and dense with argument. Modern American politics is not very rich or dense with argument. It's rich or dense with images. Images of the future, claims to be able to do, do or not do things, to solve or not solve problems. But it's, in a way, we have a very impoverished political dialogue today. Uh, what are commercials? I mean, the whole art of TV commercials is a way of pushing buttons, pro or con, draw, you know, giving you very sketchy sort of images of the other candidate or the other party. But, I mean, argumentation is not the specialty of, of our campaigning um, these days. And so in that sense, the, the cost of this turn towards a sort of visionary philosophy of history-based uh, politics has been a sort of um, enlargement of imagination and passion and diminution of reason in our political conversations. Um, and that obviously is not what, exactly what Woodrow Wilson intended but it may have been an unintended consequence of Wilson's um, um, discovery and his embrace of this new, new notion of, um, of leadership. Uh, let's uh, finally turn to 225. Okay, here at the, these first two paragraphs contain, we'll come back to, this, to the problem that we've been discussing, John and uh, Cheryl, Cheryl no, uh, over here, uh, raised for us. Sort of the ultimate uh, moral problem in the, uh, in the Wilsonian approach. How do you know that a cause, how do you know that a, a cause should succeed or should not succeed? How do you distinguish a good cause from a bad cause and that's a good leader from a bad leader. Okay, here's, here's what, how Wilson answers. He says, no cause is born out of its time. Every successful reform movement has had, its, has had as its efficient cry some principle of equity or morality already accepted well now universally, but not yet universally applied in the affairs of life. Every such movement has been the awakening of a people to see a new field for old principles. These men who stood alone at the inception of the movement and whose voices then seemed, as it, uh, as it were, the voices of men crying in the wilderness, have in reality been simply the more sensitive organs of society, the parts first awakened to consciousness of a situation. With the start and irritation of a sudden summons from sleep, society resents the disturbance of its restful unconsciousness and for a moment racks itself with hasty passion. That's why leaders of a cause often seem to be uh, so disliked and in the minority. But once the idea is, once the public is completely aroused, it will sanely meet the necessities of conduct revealed by the hour of its awakening. Great reformers do not indeed observe times and circumstances. They have no thought for occasion, no capacity for compromise but they are nonetheless produced by occasions. They are early vehicles of the spirit of the age, capitalized. That's this Hegelian idea, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. They are early vehicles of the spirit of the age. They are born of the very times that oppose them. 
Their success is the acknowledgement of their legitimacy. All right. Their success is the acknowledgement of their legitimacy. Here is where Darwinism and ethics collide in Wilson's thought. Because what he's now saying is, if a movement succeeds, it must be legitimate. If it, if it, because it, it survives, it must be the fittest. Right? This means that if the, you know, if the, let us say, hypothetically, if the Nazis had won World War II, well, what can you say? History was on their side. They must have been right to take the unpopular stand that they took. If success is the acknowledgement of their legitimacy, then every cause that succeeds is legitimate. In other words, there's no possibility of a bad cause winning. Sir, or there's no, no possibility of a bad cause winning other than temporarily, very temporarily, to be a little more cautious about the formulation. Now, that's where Darwinism and ethical progress come, come finally at loggerheads, I think. This attempt to, um, to understand history as a progressive thing and as a Darwinian thing ultimately uh, leads you down this dark alley that whatever wins must be right because history has vindicated it. Now, Wilson obviously is a very smart man and a very uh, cultured man, very civilized man, and I'm sure he would not, he would denounce the formulation I've just used. He would, because he is confident that what wins in the end must be right. That's why he's a progressive. But if you think that that is not inevitable, if you think that the right does not have to win over the wrong in the end, then the whole scheme of <coughs> progress, progressive leadership, opening the Constitution to change, understood as always progressive change, becomes much more questionable, to say the least. Right. Now, Wilson, of course, would not believe for a moment that the Nazis um, were right, even if they had won the Second World War, I think. He, he, every particle of his body would revolt against that. But what argument would he use to indict them as wrong if they had, in fact, triumphed? if they had survived, and not only survived, but crushed the life out of all the competitors in that Darwinian situation. Yes, now I'm sure, I mean, the, the argument of last resort would be, okay, this is only temporary. The Nazis have won, but in 100 years, they'll be defeated. Um, well, that's a prediction. It's a vision, maybe, but it's not fact yet. And it's not clear that nasty regimes can't last a long time. I mean, there are many historical examples of pretty nasty regimes that lasted for hundreds of years. Um, and, but of course, 
that leads you down a very different path in which you don't see history as something inevitable, but as something highly contingent. And that leads you to sort of old-fashioned politics of the kind that I think Lincoln is a great exemplar of. Because Lincoln never argued that, you know, that slavery was doomed by history. Never argued that. His argument was, unless we take a stand today, slavery will expand, will prosper, and this union may very well become all slave rather than all free. Everything depends upon what we do, you know, how we think and how we act. Responsibility is on us. History will not deliver us from the mistakes that we make if we make mistakes now. That is a very different understanding of politics and of political sobriety and of the duties of a, an American citizen than is ultimately suggested, it seems to me, by the Wilsonian confidence that, well, we may have lost this one, but believe me, in the end, all will be right. Because history can't let Nazism or whatever evil, slavery, survive. History will select against it because history selects in favor of morality. There's a sort of historical selection like natural selection on behalf of morality. But what if, but is there? And what if there isn't? I mean, that's huge, huge questions which, which I think um, accentuate the differences between Wilson and Lincoln as sort of models of American statesmanship and, and citizenship. Yes? Right. And that human nature needed to be checked. Wilson, I don't think, is saying anything about human nature, is he? I mean, is he taking that into account at all? Well, he, he, he believes in human nature, but human, he doesn't rest his argument on nature. He rests his argument on history. History, history in this sense, is something in between nature and convention because it's the story of how our nature develops over time. Um, and there really is a sense in which um, he, doesn't, he doesn't quite say this, but um, his thought seems to point in the direction of saying that, um, with Hegel, that um, our nature changes in the sense that um, capacities that were latent for centuries become activated as circumstances um, allow them to be so. And so what Wilson says is we now have, and this is a, to pick up on uh, John Dewey as well, who's on the reading list, um, sort of individualistic human nature manifested itself in the 18th century, particularly, when um, society was ripe for it, when the family farm dominated the economy, and when individual human beings and their families were the units of society. But in the 20th century, where the family farm is giving way to corporations and, and individuals disappear into the uh, roster of the corporate employees, um, we need a more social concept of the individual. We need a more socialized concept of the individual that doesn't put so much of an emphasis upon his uh, individual um, rights and his individual integrity, but sees him as part of larger social groups and social problems to which he has 
social rights and social duties. Um, and the, the, the new individualism, as some people called it, um, early in the 20th century. So his only argument for the logic end of the tunnel being a train is the fact that it's just temporary. Even though the train may have just run right over you, it's okay because it's only temporary. Because history can't lie. Yeah, if history, well, if history is progressive, um, you, you can have confidence that in the end, the right will triumph. Maybe not for you. Maybe, maybe not for you. No, no. But remember, when, when, when Wilson talks about, see, here's one difference, one way to look at the difference. When Wilson talks about constitutional government, he doesn't really talk about the American Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, natural rights, and all that stuff. He always begins with Magna Carta. Democracy for him is a you know, centuries, uh, millennia long story with its roots effectively in Magna Carta. And so um, if, you, if the horizon in which, you, in which you evaluate wins and losses is that long, you have a lot of room to, uh, uh, to fudge bad results by saying, well, you know, Maybe for a while, but let's see what it's like in 100 years or 200 years or 300 years from now. All right, I, I want to now turn to FDR, if I may. Um, Wilson's uh, practical program in the 1912 campaign he called the New Freedom. Uh, and it's interesting, the new freedom, not a new birth of freedom, like Abraham Lincoln had called for. Lincoln's call meant that there was still some intimate connection between the new birth of freedom and the old freedom. It's a new birth of the old freedom. Wilson thought the times were so different that we need now an altogether new concept of freedom. And his viewpoint effectively gave birth to the, to the 20th century's um, penchant for uh, sort of reinventing the country every administration or two. So you have nothing like this in the 19th century. If you think about you know, the, the, um, the new freedom, um, the great society, I'm sorry, the new freedom, the new deal, um, the new frontier, uh, the new covenant, the fair deal. Uh, you didn't have presidents running on slogans, each of which claimed in some way to be reinventing the country or reimagining the country every administration or so. In the 19th century, nothing like that. Uh, but in the 20th century, we're sort of used to the notion that somehow government is going to change society, make it from a not so great into a great society, for example, in the course of their administration by the use of certain kinds of social programs, by the development of new agencies of government, new administrative uh, mechanisms of government. Well, this understanding, which originates in Wilson, sort of reaches its uh, peak, I would say, in the New Deal. Um, and what I want to talk about now, as, uh, as much as we can, is what is the New Deal and to what extent does uh, FDR show his indebtedness to Wilson's understanding of things uh, in his formulation of the New Deal? Now, first of all, let me ask us a, 
off-the-cuff off the question. What does the term New Deal mean? What is it? In ordinary life, what does it conjure up? Maria? Okay, a new deal is a new deal of the cards. Uh, you've gotten, you have a lousy hand or a losing hand, and you're looking forward to the next deal, to a new deal uh, of the cards where your chances might be better. What else might it mean? You often think of it as between two people or a, um, you know, or two different groups. It's not just uh, one, one person that gets it from out of nowhere. I mean, it's... Okay, it, uh, you mean a, a new arrangement, yeah. or a new, a new deal could be uh, you know, a new arrangement, uh, a new um, set of circumstances, right? And, and if you push that farther enough, farther enough um, far enough, um, a new deal would mean like a new contract. Yeah, a new contract, yeah. that's a good word. Right, okay. All right, I think uh, FDR deliberately plays upon the ambiguities between those two meanings. Because in the, in the minimal sense, a new deal means same card game, same rules of the game, just we're reshuffling the deck. Or it can mean an entirely new arrangement, a new contract, a new game uh, with new rules. Yeah. And the, the, the New Deal is, in a way, both of those. Um, he presents it modestly. Um, his rhetoric suggests that this is just, we're just, we're, it's the same American game, but we're going to give the poor a few more cards. We're just going to, you know, sort of redistribute the deck again. Uh, but at the same time, he has a, a much bolder, more ambitious um, program that really amounts to a kind of second American social contract or a new understanding of the social contract. Now, both of these senses are on display in, uh, in the most philosophical speech that FDR ever gave, which is the Commonwealth Club address from 1932. And I thought, since we don't have much time, if we just... Um, look at that speech for a moment. We can find in it plenty to uh, spur our thought. What page is that on? Somebody? <laughs> May I? Um, all right, this is uh, FDR campaigning in, the, in his first quest for the presidency, 1932. He's in Commonwealth Club in uh, San Francisco, still exists, and politicians still come there to uh, give important speeches. Uh, but this speech uh, is very revealing, it seems to me, of um, FDR's own understanding of what he's trying to do. Now, we, we, I, I suppose we should begin by acknowledging that FDR did not write this speech. Um, unlike Lincoln uh, or Wilson, uh, FDR is a modern president with a speechwriting team, part of the Brain Trust. But we know, because we have the actual copies of it, that, F that FDR edited this speech very carefully in his own handwriting and made numerous changes to it. 
which were then incorporated into the final version you see in front of you. So even though he didn't write the first draft of the speech, he made sure that the, the words that were going to come out of his mouth were words that he meant, words that he uh, believed in, as it were. Now, I'd like to start at the bottom of page 669 um, with this you know, paragraph, which is, in, in some ways, um, one of the most remarkable paragraphs that any would-be president has ever spoken. Um, here it is, bottom of page uh, 669. He says, the issue of government has always been whether individual men and women will have to serve some system of government uh, or economics, or whether a system of government and economics exists to serve individual men and women. Okay, here's a standard boilerplate kind of political question for American politics. Are we here to serve the government, or is the government here to serve us? Answer? Yeah, the government is here to serve us. But that's not FDR's answer. That's the remarkable thing. That's the, that's the, you know, that's the default setting for an answer. You would assume the answer would be, you know, that we're here for government to serve us. We're not like, you know, the Soviet Union where um, uh, we're supposed to serve the government, right? We're the other side. But what does FDR say? Something very unusual, very philosophical. The question has persistently dominated the discussion of government for many generations. On questions relating to these things, men have differed, and for time immemorial, it is probable that honest men will continue to differ. The final word belongs to no man. So, in other words, FDR is saying he's agnostic on the question. Are we here to serve government, or is government here to serve us? Well, he says there's no final answer to that question. That is really strange, perplexing. What, could, what possible justification or explanation could he give for not giving the standard answer to that question? Perhaps because government will only function effectively if it is a participatory government, so that if we do not take some part in our government, mm -hmm. so it's not totally to serve us, we must participate and be a part of it for it to That would be a good answer, um, but it, I don't think it's his answer exactly, but I mean, it, it, that might be a good answer. Um, what he says, let's just finish reading the paragraph here. The final word belongs to no man, Yet we can still believe in change and in progress. Here's where Wilson comes in. Democracy is a dear old friend of mine in Indiana, Meredith Nicholson has called it, is a quest, a never-ending seeking for better things. And in the seeking for these things and the striving for better things, um, there are many roads to follow. But if we map the course of these roads, we find out that there are only two general directions. All right. <clears throat> um, this is a copy from, I take it from a web page. So you don't, there are actually some mistakes here, as you can see in the, uh, in the text. You have to, you have to um, account for that. Sometimes these texts are corrupt on the web, which is one reason why 
students should be sent to look at books occasionally. Um, not that books are perfect, but they usually are pretty are more reliable than the text you find uh, on the web. But okay, here's what FDR says. <clears throat> Final word belongs to no man, but we can still believe in progress. The, the never-ending seeking for better things. So in other words, whether we are here to serve government or government is here to serve us is a question that progress or history must answer for us. It's not a question that any man can answer. Only time will tell. Now, he goes on then to sketch in the next part of the speech a sort of dialectical account of progress in America. And what he describes is a kind of alternation between periods in which in one period, say, the period of the robber barons, Americans have to serve a system of economics and government. But, he says, we're, we're basically, we've, we're coming to the end of that period and now, if you elect me to office, the future will be very different because I will be able to bring us into a period in which government will again and economics will again serve us instead of us serving them. Now, um, this is a, it's an unusual argument, it's a strange argument because what he's saying is, in effect, um, in the dialectic of history, in the, in the progress of history, each of these principles can be legitimate in different periods. The robber barons, although they were robbers and they were barons, were appropriate for their time. But we are now fortunately moving beyond them. Hear what he says at the bottom um, of, um, let's see. page 671. Um, in this speech he gives you, a, he sort of walks you through American history from the founding up until 1932, up to the Great Depression. And he says, bottom of uh, 671, so manifest were the advantages of the machine age that the United States fearlessly, cheerfully, and I think rightly accepted the bitter with the sweet. It was thought that uh, no price was too high to pay for the advantages we could draw from a finished industrial system. The history of the last half century is accordingly in large measure a history of a group of financial titans whose methods were not scrutinized with too much care and who, honored, and who were honored in proportion as they produced the results, irrespective of the means they used. The financiers who pushed the railroads to the Pacific were always ruthless. Um, frequently corrupt and something else which I've forgotten. But we have them today, that is we have the railroads today. It has been estimated that the American investor paid for the railway system more than three times over, but despite that the net advantage was to the United States. So these robber barons, financial titans, unscrupulous, corrupt, but they built railroads. And so they were right for their time, because we needed railroads more than we needed uncorrupt businessmen. He picks up the same theme again on page 673, where he now sort of turns the corner on this nasty period 
and looks forward to the future, which will be quite different and better. Clearly, he says, this is a penultimate paragraph on 673, clearly all this calls for a reappraisal of values. A mere builder of more industrial plants, a creator of more railroad systems, an organizer of more corporations, is as likely to be a danger as a help. The day of the great promoter or financial titan to whom we granted anything, if only he would build, is over. Our task is uh, now is not the discovery or exploitation of natural resources or producing more goods. It is the sober, less dramatic task of administering resources and plants already in hand, of seeking to reestablish foreign markets for our surplus production, of meeting the problem of underconsumption, of adjusting production to consumption, of distributing wealth and products more equitably, of adapting e existing economic organizations to the service of the people. Timpani roll. The day of enlightened administration has come. Very Wilsonian. Very Wilsonian. Very Wilsonian. That, that one paragraph gives you the whole political strategy of, 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 or goals of the New Deal, really. And that, that one paragraph is very useful for that purpose. Now, let's just think for a moment about what he's calling for. First of all, what does he mean by calling these guys titans? with a capital T. Who are the titans? The gods, gods, what kind of gods? The old gods. The old gods, exactly. <clears throat> the pre-Olympian gods in the Greek, in Greek mythology. The, that is, the gods who were overthrown by Zeus. <clears throat> and in whose overthrow came you know, the more civilized and enlightened gods of the, of the Olympic pantheon, Zeus and his wife, and all of those people who populate the Iliad uh, come to the fore. So what, what, what does FDR mean by calling them titans then, the financiers? They were big at one time, they were in charge at one time, and now it's time for a new... That's right. They were the gods of a dark, primitive age who are now going to be overthrown and left behind by a new set of gods of a more advanced and civilized age. So they were, they were the appropriate gods for that age. But the new age demands new gods, as it were. Olympian, more civilized, more humane uh, deities, starting with him. <laughs> that's, that's the implication. And the new age is going to be one in which economics, capitalism, is subordinated to the people. And government is subordinated to the people. And so instead of us serving the robber barons, as we had to do for decades, now they're going to serve us. Capitalism and politicians are going to work for the people and not the other way um, around. And what they're going to do, what serving the people means, is they're going to, as he says in this paragraph, um, adjust production to consumption, distribute wealth and products more equitably. Now, this one paragraph, uh, may I keep going for five or ten minutes? Okay. Um, this one paragraph says, um, very succinctly, what the New Dealers, what their diagnosis of the 
causes of the Great Depression were. And their diagnosis is the depression was caused by underconsumption, or what's the same thing expressed differently, overproduction. Right? Now, you're all familiar with this, uh, I'm sure, but so I'll just say briefly. What does it mean? It means that there's nothing wrong with the economy. It can, the factories can produce as many automobiles and as many ice boxes uh, as, as, uh, uh, you know, as before the Depression. The problem is people don't have money enough to buy them. And they don't have money enough to buy them because, in effect, wealth is maldistributed. There are too many poor people and not enough rich people. And unfortunately, you know, rich people can only use so many ice boxes and so many automobiles. And when they have what they need or want, who's going to buy them? The poor who don't have money to buy them. And so the plants shut down because we're producing too much for the income distribution that we have. The plants shut down, they throw people out of work, the poor people get poorer. And so you have this spiral of depression, which is both an economic, and this is the political genius of FDR in so describing this, it is both an economic and a moral problem. The moral problem is maldistribution of wealth, and so is the economic problem. And you can't cure the economic problem. You can't rescue the country from depression until you cure the moral problem of the wealthy having too much money and the poor having too little. And so the whole political economy of the New Deal is based upon this argument, that you must take from the rich and give to the poor so that the poor will have the purchasing power to begin to buy things again. That will mean men will be called back from the unemployment lines to the factories, will begin to produce things again, and you'll get a virtuous spiral. The economy will be lifted from depression, Unemployment will fade, and at the same time, the country will have a more equitable distribution of wealth. That's the, in a, in a paragraph, that's what the New Deal was all about. Now, um, you couldn't redistribute wealth. You can't take from Peter and give to Paul uh, under the old understanding of rights or at least you couldn't do so very conveniently and easily under the old understanding of rights. Under the old understanding, government is here to protect my life, my liberty, and my property. It's not here to take my property and give it to you. I'm putting this very bluntly and, I mean, one would have to drop many footnotes here, but here's here's a, a sort of broad brush way of putting this problem. And so to make the, the to rescue the company, country from depression, um, FDR has to reformulate the terms of the social contract. To give everyone a new deal in the sense of a new set of cards, he's actually got to change the rules of the game, or change the game perhaps, in some uh, dramatic and deep way. And that's exactly what he begins to talk about in the rest of this speech. Namely, what the new American social compact or social contract is going to look like and how it's going to differ from the old one. Um, the, the paragraph we want is on the next page, 674. 
before I read this, and this will sort of conclude uh, our discussion of FDR, um, let me let me let me just say something which uh, I will, uh, which you have no reason necessarily to believe, <laughs> but. Um, uh, it, 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 would, it would be an interesting question for you to look into. And that is that um, I would say no modern economist would agree with FDR's diagnosis of the causes of the Depression. Even liberal economists uh, have abandoned this, this theory of underconsumption or overproduction. Um, conservative economists, of course, have abandoned it, never held it. but. Liberal economists who used to endorse it in the 1950s have, due to the enormous outpouring of scholarship in economics and economic history on the question, have, lar have, have almost completely abandoned uh, it or anything um, like it. The explanations now you will find are, have to do especially with uh, the collapse of the monetary supply, the very ill-considered policies of the Federal Reserve, which at a time when the economy was sinking, the Federal Reserve should have been expanding the money supply and uh, you know, putting cash into the system so that banks would be able to pay off their depositors who came you know, in the run on the bank to withdraw their savings, that sort of thing. And instead, the Federal Reserve did exactly the wrong thing. They contracted the money supply and sent what was, in the beginning, a recession plunging deep, deep, deep into depression. There are also some international things with the tariff, uh, raising tariffs and impeding free trade across the, uh, between Europe basically and the United States, which would have helped to e equilibrate the two economies, which didn't happen because there was a, uh, instead of lowering trade barriers, they raised trade barriers um, at a time of um, depression. So there were some fundamental, I mean, most economists would now say the distribution of income had nothing to do with the depression. Uh, it was a series of, of almost impossibly dumb policy mistakes by the people in charge of the economy, uh, politicians and experts alike, that, that sent us spiraling into depression. Now, uh, that's, a, that's a, a big subject and, you know, a subject for a different uh, kind of class. But um, there's, there are good books out there if you want to read uh, about this and sort of see what's now being said on it. But let's conclude by looking at the middle, more or less middle paragraph, the one that begins with the Declaration of Independence on page 674. Here in a nutshell again is FDR's view of, of the social contract from the New Deal on, the new social contract. But he wraps it in a description of the old social contract. Uh, this is part of his political genius, you know. Here's what he says. Instead of opposing the Constitution and the Declaration the way Wilson did, FDR simply says, look, I'm just adjusting them to the new circumstances. He doesn't, um, he learned in a way from Wilson perhaps not that you don't have to, Wilson didn't need to um, oppose the spirit of the old Constitution to today's necessities as much as he did. You could have finessed it, and FDR does finesse it. Here's how he does it. The Declaration of Independence discusses the problem of government in terms of a contract. Government is a relation of give and take, a contract perforce, if we would follow the thinking out of which it grew. 
Under such a contract, rulers were accorded power and the people consented to that power on consideration that they be accorded certain rights. The task of statesmanship has always been the redefinition of these rights in terms of a changing and growing social order. That's Wilson, right there. The redefinition of these rights in terms of a changing and growing social order. New conditions impose new requirements upon government and those who conduct government. All right. What is that contract again? It's a contract under which rulers were accorded power and the people consented to that power on consideration that they be accorded certain rights. So in other words, the people give government power, the power gives the people right. Uh, the government gives the people rights. Now, how is that different from the understanding of the contract that we saw in the founding or even perhaps in uh, Abraham Lincoln? The government doesn't give rights. Sorry, the government? Yes, the founders, it wasn't the government that gave rights. They predated the existence. Okay, all right. Under the, under the traditional understanding of the social contract, the government didn't give you rights. You had rights before the contract. The purpose of instituting a government is to protect the rights you already have as a human being. Yeah, if anything, you, you gave up some of your rights entering into the contract. Right. Well, that's, uh, you, you did something to them. What you did to them exactly is actually a question among the, <laughs> the thinkers in the period. But, um, yeah, you had rights going in. Um, and the purpose of the negotiation is not to... Um, <coughs> get more rights or get different rights, but to protect the rights you have by instituting government. Under FDR's understanding, you don't get rights, you don't bring rights to the contract, you get them out of the contract. You get rights from the government. And also, notice this difference, that individuals disappear. This is a contract between the people and the government. In the Declaration of Independence, the, the, the basic social contract is that individuals have to come together to form a people. And then the people decides what kind of government it wants to have. Here, individuals and individual rights as such drop out of the contract. The people is sort of there as a pre-existing thing, and government is kind of there as a pre-existing thing. And the two, the two are the parties to this negotiation. And the people don't have rights, they have power. And they say to the government, look, I'll let you do this, I'll give you the power to do this, but in exchange you must give me certain liberties or rights. So in other words, if I may cut to the quick cut to the chase here, what's the model of this social contract? This new social contract is not the Declaration of Independence, it's Magna Carta. That is the people give to the government, the nobles representing the people here, give to the government the right to tax them, but in return, King John grants to the people and to the nobles certain liberties in, 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 in exchange. Now, so this contract is in a way strangely medieval. That is, it's a contract in which you don't have, the people have no, individuals have no rights except the rights that government gives them in thanks for having empowered the government to tax and to conduct its business 
um, efficiently and speedily. In short, this understanding is, again, Wilsonian to the core. Um, the model of constitutional government is, underlies what to us now are the familiar rights that have grown out of the New Deal and the other programs of the welfare state. In other words, this is a formula for entitlement rights. Entitlements are rights that the government promises you as a member of some category. And these rights exist only in civil law. I mean, they're not natural rights. They're not supposed to be natural rights. They're promises that the government makes to you. If you retire, once you retire at age 65, you will get this amount of benefits. If you become unemployed, you will receive these kinds of benefits. Um, you know, broad categories of people who are entitled to these benefits because the government um, says so. And increasingly, these kinds of rights have been at the center of American politics. Basically, what the welfare state means is that social entitlements of this kind are the heart of our politics. So in a way, the old Constitution has not gone away. Natural rights um, are not much talked about anymore, but we still presume that government is here in some ways to protect our life, our liberty, uh, and our property. But increasingly, our politics is really not about that not about limiting government so that it, doesn't, it itself doesn't threaten our life and liberty and property. Because in this exchange, you see there's a kind of, this is where big government comes from, in a way, psychologically at least. Because we have no reason to fear a government who, when we give it more power, gives us more rights. In fact, if we think that our most important rights come from government, that in a way is an invitation to give government even more power so that it may then give us more rights or benefits. So why fear big government if far from being an, a, a, a potential danger to you and your rights, it is increasingly the source of your rights. And the pay and the uh, and the payor of the benefits that, to which we're now entitled. Well, uh, I want to close on that. I mean, one of the great problems of American politics today is, of course, we have these two sort of constitutional systems, two social contracts coexisting in our politics, but they don't fit together all that well. There are, certain, there are many points at which they rub together uh, in an unhappy and uh, painful way and we're sort of trying to think our way through how we can make them fit better or whether we have to, what we have to sacrifice from each one of them to try to make uh, our politics um, less confrontational and more beneficial to American citizens. Um, what we're going to see tomorrow is the conservative critique of this new social contract and the attempt, at least, by conservatives to um, return, return us, in some sense, to the old Constitution and to um, uh, peel away the new one. Anyway, that's the agenda for tomorrow, for me.